When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 44, Ranching Reboot. Doesn't seem like we've done that many of these, but I guess we have. Yeah, they're starting to pile up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And before we get going too much further into this one, I do want to make an announcement that this will be the last episode for the year. Uh, we're going to, this one will be released next week. Um, this will be the last episode of the year. So for all your listeners, when there's no uh, new ranching reboot on your podcast app, the morning of December 27th, I told you so. So we're going to take a week off for the holidays and I want everybody to make sure they have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll be back the first week of January, first Monday of January with another episode. So Trevor, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and CK's back. She's uh, it's been a little while since I've seen CK. <laughs> I well first Brian I was in Myrtle Beach at National Grazing Lands Coalition or conference and it was amazing to meet a lot of our listeners in person so if you guys are listening again it's actually really great for you guys to come up and say hi to us and just say that you recognize my voice before you recognize who I was um so this is my shout out to you guys I was gonna ask how that went like did you have a good time like were there was good speakers that you got to go listen to yeah, you know, Jason Meadows was there. Um, so it was, it was really good. They highlighted a lot of mental health and I thought it was really great because we haven't seen a lot of that. I'm seeing this transition where it's okay to talk about if you're feeling vulnerable or you're not having the best half year or even years of your life. And so um, just seeing that change of things that you, Brian and I talk about and we're like, we need to talk about this and stop you know, sweeping it under the rug and thinking that no one has these same issues. Um, connected with a lot of faces and you know what I have to say is funny is is you know like Trevor I think you and I have had calls together before but it'd be funny for us to meet in person and then you just realize that you don't look exactly like what you do in zoom you know and you're like oh okay yeah. that's what they look like in real part life <laughs> you know um, some of them are really really tall um, some other way around and I'm just like okay okay you just can't you can't tell these things over even zoom still how, mm-hmm. how they will be in real life Russell Hedrick is a giant man like he is a giant bear of a man and it didn't it I didn't get that at all on zoom yeah Yeah. (laughs) so Trevor thanks for uh thanks for joining us I know you're kind of a busy guy um let's uh well let's introduce you to our listeners let's start off from where you at and uh and what are you doing these days so yeah uh, Trevor Burian I'm in western North Dakota uh, I was born and raised on the ranch I'm 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 on now, and uh, yeah, I've been ranching, been back at the ranch for 11 years, going on my 12th year now. Um, started out pretty conventionally, not really, you know, just kind of doing what everyone said, you know, what everyone said to do. 
and did that for about my first seven years and ended up going backwards quite a bit. And so I was looking for, for something a little bit different and I stumbled across Gabe Brown on YouTube and kind of fell hard into the rabbit hole of regenerative agriculture. And here I am uh, three, and a half, uh, three and a half years later and haven't really looked back. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, a fun ride and um, it's gonna keep, we have a long ways to go, but um, I, I, we have a purpose and have a trajectory forward now. Okay. Uh, it, I've already heard a couple of details that were like different from what I had assumed just from, you know, following you on social media and, and interacting with you over the years. Um, so tell me about the family ranch. You know, it's, you said you guys, you grew up conventional and doing things conventionally. Like, so let's break that down in just a little bit more detail. Yeah. So, uh, here in Western North Dakota, my dad uh, and, and a lot of people around here, small grain farmers, were a little bit too dry to raise corn. There are some people doing no-till dry land corn around here and can get some pretty decent crops, but it's real hit or miss. We're in about a 14 to 15 inch rainfall environment. And uh, and so we're, we're, you get west or east of us about 50 miles and for about every 50 miles you, you go, you get about another inch of rain I, I think it's the same way kind of where you're at in kansas too yeah uh, so we're on the bad side of that before it starts uh starts getting more rain but uh so we my dad grew small grains barley wheat oats growing up uh full tillage summer follow grew, grew up with with that um and it you know it was it was it was tough i i could tell that you know my parents weren't making a lot of my, money my mom was a school teacher um also and to help make ends meet and we didn't we didn't grow up lacking for anything but we definitely didn't have have a whole lot of money so um and then also my dad had a lot of health problems uh when we were growing up so um i kind of got thrown into the mix in junior high and early high school uh taking a lot of the burden and it really kind of made me not want to come back at all uh, my dad retired when i was halfway through high school and started uh uh putting the cattle out on shares and renting out the place. And I told him I really didn't want to come back to it. So that's uh, kind of how I left things after high school. So then what happened? <laughs> well, then I, I think this happens quite a bit. Um, you leave, you know, when you grow up in a rural community and super rural here in Western North Dakota, everyone around you farms and ranches, you don't even realize it's a special way of life. And then, uh, you go off to college. I, I didn't go far, Western South Dakota and then to Bozeman, Montana. But um, you even go into those places, you realize that, uh, you know, not everyone grew up the way you did. And it's a pretty special way of life. And you just start missing, I don't know, you start missing home, start missing the countryside. So I ended up back in, back in Dickinson, uh, working for the Forest Service uh, as a wildland firefighter and started working on my buddy's ranch on the side. And uh, realized I wanted to come back home. So had an opportunity, the people that were leasing my parents' ranch, the lease was up, and this would have been when I was 20, 22, um, the lease was up. And I also had an uncle who lost a lease and had a whole bunch of cattle with nowhere to go. And so I was able to take on about 80 share cattle uh, from my uncle to kind of, so I wouldn't have to go in big time debt, get my own herd, herd started. So that's kind of kind of how I got started back back on the place. 
what's your land base and your livestock operation look like? So uh, the operation I grew up on was is 2,200 acres. And I started purchasing that for my parents when I came back here 11 years ago. And then uh, an opportunity came up this spring for us to purchase an additional uh, 1,200 acres right next door. So even though it probably wasn't the smartest thing financially, it was an opportunity we felt we couldn't pass up. So we took the plunge and bought another 1,200 acres. So we're at 3,400 acres uh, right now. Wow, that's awesome. So, and we can get into it a little bit later of, you know, the economics of how you're making that work. As I think myself, a lot of people and myself included, I think we were pretty far past the point where in most places in the country, you can't buy land anymore and pay for it with cows. No, absolutely not. And uh, when I first came back to the place, um, I, you know, you know, looking at it up economically, as far as running cattle, I knew I wasn't going to be able to make ends meet just running cattle. So uh, here in Western North Dakota, we got to have good opportunities as far as there being oil field around here. And so I had a job in the oil field uh, when I came back in, in 2010, working in, <laughs> working at a gravel pit in the oil field, uh, screening gravel and, and crushing rock. And it wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of fun. And so uh, I did that for about six months. And then I started my oil field business uh, uh, doing noxious weed spraying on pipeline right-of-ways and uh, applying herbicide to oil pads and electrical substations. And, uh, I'm, and I'm still doing that to this day. And then also I added an element of doing long haul hot shot trucking to, um, yep. Yeah, we almost, uh, yeah, to make a trip right past me a couple of weeks ago and we almost made that work to where you could stop by. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've actually driven past you a bunch of times, but it's always kind of in a time crunch uh, to, to, get, to get stuff down there. And uh, I thought it was going to work out that maybe I could stop in on the way back, but I ended up having to, to swing back through, back through Denver. But yeah, I've driven through your area uh, a, a lot of times, but I'm usually a little bit to the west of you. Um, usually I go Dodge City in south or, or Clearwater in south. And uh, you get over towards Clearwater, that is some beautiful grass country. So if your country looks anything like that, I'd get some pretty good ground. Uh, see, Clearwater, that's, that's a little closer over to Wichita. I think that's east of me. It'd be, it'd be west of you. It'd be between you and Dodge City, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, that is, it is a really, really pretty area up there. Like between here and Dodge City, if you get out, up out of the river bottom, which is all farmed up and, you know, mostly center pivot irrigation, you get up on some of the, of the hilltops and ridgetops and it is, it's, it is really pretty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of an underappreciated area of the world. And I think we kind of talked about this last week on the podcast that, you know, and, and you probably can attest to this driving, you know, back and forth up you know, through North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, everybody thinks of as primarily a farm state wheat. Right. And everybody thinks of Nebraska as corn, but really Nebraska corn is just kind of narrow strip down to Platte Valley. And then the Eastern end of the state, like the rest of it, you know, the middle half of it and everything on the West, that's all sand Hills. And that's literally nothing but cows. And yeah. 
Kansas, you know, it, it's kind of almost the same, you know, there's like the wheat production is in a few areas and the irrigations in a few areas and the rest of it is just fast open rangelands for cows. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't been through Kansas before three years ago, especially or Western Kansas. Um, I'd been through Eastern down the interstate, like, and then through Wichita. And like you said, it's, it's, it's flat wheat fields and, and corn, but you get over West and it's rolling hills. It's beautiful grass country. And same with Western Nebraska. Um, when I drive down, I always drive down through Western Nebraska and Western Kansas because I can't stand that just flat driving through fields the whole, whole time. I need, need a little bit of topography. I know exactly how that feels. I started taking the interstate a lot less and taking some of the back roads that go up through the hills. And because, you yeah. know, they build the interstates where it's easy to build the interstates where it's nice and flat. There's a mm -hmm. reason why the roads are there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you catch quite a bit of heat and you on social media, or maybe I shouldn't say you catch quite a bit of heat, but you're, you're really active and engaging with the people that I would say are kind of critical of you or leaving critical comments. So how, how do you let that not get to you? Cause there's times where I have a video that blows up and you know, it, it's 10 to one positive comments to negative comments, but sometimes those negative comments really eat up on you. So how do you, how do you stay in a positive frame of mind? Well, I don't know. I was, I was going to ask you that same thing. Cause uh, <laughs> I'm kind of new to TikTok, and um, I, I, been putting content on Facebook for a while but with Facebook you kind of only reach a set group of people and you don't expand that I like TikTok because it'll throw your stuff up on a bunch of different people and it's a great way to to engage with new people and trying to spread the message of regenerative agriculture um you know that's kind of I, probably both of our goals or all three of our our our, our, right. our goal and um and yeah you're right you get a mostly positive comments people being being supportive but sometimes it, there's people coming after you and i first of all like replying to those videos i, I think you know it's, it's pretty decent content a lot of people watch that and so that's one of the reasons why i do it but it, it is wearing when when people are just calling you an idiot and <laughs> and I which I really don't I really don't understand those people. I think there's three types of people in the in the world: the people that'll just watch and and never say anything and just scroll, and then there's people that'll comment on the stuff they like, and then just scroll past. And then there's a third group of people that seeks out stuff they don't like and just has to has to comment it. I don't I don't understand that. I. When I'm on social media, I don't seek out stuff I don't like. That just yeah. seems like it make your existence kind of miserable. Ryan, what is it you say? They renting renting space in your head for free, or what? What is oh, it? Oh, the haters! You're you're haters. <laughs> I love I like I like haters. Like haters are almost as great as super fans. Actually, they're better because a super fan you have to work to keep them engaged. You have to work to keep their attention. Somebody that doesn't like you, that just follows you around the internet to talk shit on all your social media, I mean, that's a hater. And that's better than your number one fan because you already get to live in their head rent-free and you don't have to work for it at all. Yeah, and, I, and I'm and I'm accumulating a few of those as we go. But I don't know, it, it comes with the territory. If I wasn't, if I didn't want, you know, that's a part of putting yourself out there and trying to engage people and, and spread the message, you're going to get those. So... You know, it, I'm not gonna lie. It, it, it's there. It, there's been probably afternoons that have been ruined because 
something people have, someone said to me and even how stupid it is. Yeah. If, if, you know, the more you continue, you just have to learn from it. And if I'm going to stay on that app, I'm going to have to learn to, to let shit run off my shoulders. <laughs> I just take a break. Like if it gets too yeah. much, I just, you know, I just take a break. I try not to open it for a while and yeah, exactly. Let things cool down. Like the comments will eventually trail off the algorithm. The algorithm will quit feeding people your video. Yeah. And I, I, I posted that uh, feedlot. Someone asked my opinion on feedlots the other day. And uh, I hope you're ready to talk about it again. Cause I'm going to ask yeah, you no, no, that's, that, that, question. That, that, that's fine. And I was, I was kind of hoping that it would, that video wouldn't blow up because I was going to get the whole world after me. <laughs> I was like, Oh, just stay below 10,000 views, please. <laughs> so Trevor, I'm curious your, your transition from let's say conventional to regenerate regenerative mindset then finding Gabe Brown, like he's going to be the closest guy to you in terms of this. Was there anything in his context that didn't fit yours as far as practicing regen and what you thought regen is? Yeah. And I've tried a lot of the stuff that, that he can do. And I've, I've failed at plenty. Uh, cover crops is something he can do better. Um, they get a little bit more rain than us. Not, not lately, actually. They've, uh, they've, they've had under average rainfall, I think going on four or five years now. Um, but I've, I've tried, um, doing like a uh, seam fall rye and then following that with a cover crop and it hit or miss. I can use, I usually either hit on the rye or hit on the cover crop, but, uh, just with how expensive it is not being able to ensure forage crops. Um, that's been the biggest challenge. And so I found my niche, like kind of where I think my ranch fit, fits best in regenerative agriculture is on the grazing side. Um, we have land that was once farmed and the soils were once good enough to be farmed, but they've been depleted and mined out and it's still going to make good grassland. And I think if we regenerate the soils, I think we can get it back to as productive as it was when, you know, they were, they were farming it or maybe even before with time. But um, I think just where we are on, uh, on the moisture scale, um, I'm going to focus more on grazing and not farming. And I got, I got, when I got into regenerative egg, I got real into the farming side of it um, and lot, ended up losing money on, the, on that too. And still is a struggle because I have a NRCS con, equip contract to seed cover crops for, I think, three more years, which, which is fine. I, um, I just got into that contract last year in which I was doing that stuff without that before, which was even harder. But um, farming has been, been the biggest challenge, but um, I wasn't farming before I got into farming, just trying to do some regenerative stuff. So um, that's been the biggest challenge. Was that because there were, because there was an equip program that would pay you to do that? Is that, is that part of the driver? Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I had broke out before I had re discovered regenerative egg, uh, kind of my business model when I was first started ranching, is I would have excess hay. I would, I would put up hay and sell excess hay. And I've sold hay all over the United States, down in the Panhandle, Texas, Western Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, everywhere. And um, we had some really wet years. And, and I was like, oh, my God, this is this is easy. You know, not really understanding the ecology of, you know, to keep taking those hay crops and trucking them south. And eventually we had some dry years and my soil had no cover. I had mined out pretty much all the organic matter out of it. And 
it just stopped producing. And so I figured, okay, well, these hay fields are tired out. You know, everyone says bust them up. So I went and burned down uh, 450 acres of, of hay ground and tried to start farming them. And that, that, like that process right there, that's what got me into debt. And then halfway through that process, I found regenerative ag and kind of found a way kind of get out and let's get this stuff back into grass at some point. So. Okay. So you say you found regenerative ag and I've pretty much been asking everybody this question lately. How do you define regenerative agriculture? <clears throat> oh man. Um, I kind of got this question a little bit on TikTok too, or a similar form uh, of a guy asking me if I thought his farm was regenerative. And that is such a, a complicated thing because everyone wants to put a label on something and like this farmer's regenerative or this not, we could put that on, on labels. But when you get into that, then, then you're just going to get people skirting the system, you know? So what I think regenerative ag is, is I think it is like a, you come to realization that the whole ecosystem, all the ecosystems work together and you just got to stop forcing stuff and you got to start working with the environment you're given and, and nudging it in certain ways, just so you can, you can improve it. And we, if, if we mimic uh, the way the, the ancient ruminants, you know, migrated across our grasslands and, and grazed and defecated and, and urinated and, and, and smashed the forage and, and moved on and then gave a, a lengthy rest period if we can mimic that um and we then we can get everything healthier and just realizing that all of, everything works to just everything works together and um we can be a part of it and we can't we, we can't force it have you done any soil testing i haven't i know i need to but uh just uh only so much time in a day and I figure right money. now, yeah, absolutely. We're we're building a lot of fence right now and putting in a lot of water infrastructure, and um, I know that's just an excuse, but um, I figured my time is better spent doing that stuff. And uh, if someone if someone's listening and wants to come do soil tests and watch, you know, a, a scientist some down there, a grad student that wants to wants to do some soil tests and, and watch levels increase over time, uh, come on out. But uh, no, we haven't done it personally ourselves yet. Yeah. I, I, and that's a challenge for me too. Yeah. There's a lot of information you get from a soil test, but what is it worth and how am I going to pay for it? Yeah. Like, you know, like you hear ads, I'm I'm not too far away from irrigated corn and soybean country, so I'm always hearing ads for, you know, grid soil sampling and things like that. And then you go to the farm show and they talk about, oh, we'll come out and you know do these 40 acre grids and sample your soil and tell you what you need to apply. Like uh, you realize I'm not gonna apply anything anyway. <laughs> and your soil test probably isn't gonna tell me what I want to, and you cost over a hundred dollars an acre to give me useless information. I think I'll pass. But then again, you know, we you know, I guess that's not really what we're talking about. We're more talking about like Haney's and PLFAs and, you know, some of the newer tests that are going to tell you about like the, the microbiome in your soil and the carbon to fungal ratio and, and things like that. I, I guess where I'm at right now, um, enough guys have had done it and including guys I knew that did, I didn't know they did it, but I uh, knew them from working with them or my brothers were friends or we were French friends growing up. 
that once I got in, into uh, regenerative or, or kind of like really kind of found it on Facebook, you know, kind of discovered the community on Facebook and, uh, you know, found out a, pe a few people that I knew did it and they'd been doing it for four or five, six years already and how well it was working for them. So I feel comfortable taking the leap um, without having to do soil tests and I trusted what I was doing. And now I can see the results, you know, on the ground with the grass and everything. And uh, so I guess I, I'm comfortable moving forward without the soil test. I know some people need to see the data in front of them, you know, in numbers to to have the faith to keep to keep moving. But I guess I'm I'm not that way. Well, I think you're right too. With you see the results, could you share what the, what those are? Yeah. So. When we, when we started doing this, 2019 was our first year uh, kind of doing some form of adaptive grazing. Mm -hmm. I was starting out with zero residual on any, of my, on any of my pastures in 2019. So it was a challenge even starting then. But um, my grass lasted twice as long even that first year as what I was used to. I was used to running out of grass in my pastures in mid-July or early August, going out into my hay fields, hauling all the bales off, and then letting my kicking my cows into there and, and letting them graze off that regrowth. And that would get me into end of October, and then I'd have to start feeding hay. And usually about October 25th, I was feeding hay all the way through May 1st. And so uh, the this has allowed me to graze longer even right now my cows are still out grazing and we got about another three weeks of grazing left um and then we're going to go on full feed for january february and march and then i have stockpiled grass ready for to kick on in april or as early as as weather will allow so just doing the adaptive grazing has um, it's changed our land just 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 that rest period and um i think i think it was on your podcast last week um what was sage was his name yeah um he uh talked about just just uh 100 forage utilization or just getting better you know complete utilization of the forage you already have that was my biggest increase that first year and just that realization of just harvesting everything you already have more efficiently was the biggest jump. And now, you know, there's an incremental jump every year as, as the health of the land increases. How did you drive that forest harvest efficiency? So my first year was a lot of trial and error. And uh, I would do a lot of wagon wheel stuff around water tanks with poly wire. And I had a couple miles of poly wire out there for, it was kind of a disaster. Um, but that winter I, I got, um, started watching more YouTube videos on, on paddock design and someone that really helped me was Jim Garrish and, and what he said about. Oh, I thought sport. you were going to say when you said wagon wheel. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I started doing strip grazing, um, strip grazing away from, away from water is probably how I fence 90% of my pastures in the summer. And that's putting the initial paddock just right around the water and letting them hammer that. And then each, um, I usually do once a day moves once every day or two, but then opening up paddocks just away from the water, um, up to a half mile away, they'll trail back to the water, but you don't run with a back fence. Um, so 
when they're grazing away, I allow about a week for them to graze away about a week. And they really don't touch the stuff they already grazed as because they've um, trampled it, manure, urine all over it. And so they leave it alone until that regrowth starts. And I've found that we have about two weeks usually in the summer before our regrowth starts. So as long as I have them off of there, um, you know, within two weeks and, and then put a back fence up, then I'll then then I'm then I'm just fine. That first first summer I was trying to back fence everything as soon as I moved them in a different paddock, back fence it. But um I found that's probably a lot of unneeded work. Now if you're in a higher rainfall environment and um you got faster regrowth, or just if you're in a higher rainfall environment, you probably don't want cows trailing a half mile back to water. And even that for me, I would like to reduce that down to a quarter mile at some point, but kind of making sure everything only has a half mile to water right now is kind of the goal I'm setting. And I still have some pastures I need to, I'm, I'm working on to, to achieve that. Yeah. I, I'm probably going to misquote numbers, but you know, when you go past a quarter of a mile to water, your grazing efficiency starts dropping off a little bit, Yeah, but it yeah, really, I, fall, it really falls off sharp at that half a mile point. Yeah, and I've noticed that at the quarter mile mark, the ends of the 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 paddocks, because I like doing a about a quarter mile by mile long pastures, um, and that way when you chunk them up, you can uh, the polywire. So I'll, I'll do a better job explaining it. So quarter mile a mile long, uh, the perimeter fence is single single strand um, high tensile, and then you can set the water right in the middle. And then with poly wire, wire, set up your paddocks and then move away from the water. That's kind of how most of my pastures are set up. And I've, I've noticed as you get towards that half mile mark, towards the end of that that pasture, yeah, you tend to leave more. But it looks better from the road then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and then there's, then it won't look really good. For, then it won't look good at all from the road for about two yeah. weeks and then when it starts yeah. to grow again it'll look like the best pasture on the ranch from the road yep yep exactly can we talk about what you mean by 100 percent harvest efficiency because i think sometimes uh, when i meet with um different types of you know ranchers they don't really understand what that means and i have to explain it to them uh so like when i get into it i like to talk about there's harvest efficiency there's litter and then there's residual, right? And so, how did you how did you get into calculating like that hundred percent? What your your uh, utilization is going to be? Well, I think I think that's kind of a, a little bit of a dance you kind of do from year yeah. to year. Um, this year, I I of the stuff I grazed, I probably took more than I should, but we were in a drought, and I was trying to 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 lengthen my recovery times and the stuff I wasn't grazing and we weren't getting any rain either so it wasn't like I was hurting damaging the regrowth the, the plants are pretty much dormant so I took a little bit more um and 100 harvest efficiency is probably what how I shouldn't have, have worded it because you're never going to get 100 you're going to trample some and you're gonna you're gonna graze some um but I would just say 100 forage utilization as far as either being eaten or trampled and then you're never going to, unless you go hundreds of thousands of pounds per acre, um, probably not going to get it completely flat. But um, yeah, I would say majority of it trampled, eaten. You don't have, it graves down to nothing one spot and then 
10 feet over, you still have grass a foot high. Everything's grazed evenly, uh, even manure distribution, even urine distribution. And it, it just looks uniform when you look out there. There's a feedlot analogy that somebody posed to me about this. Like they came out, rode around, they saw, you know, my strip grazing operation. And he thought about it and he thought about it and he said, I understand what you're doing. You're like that badass pen rider I used to have down that feedlot I used to own that knew exactly how much to put in the bunk to where those cows would leave one kernel of corn in that bunk overnight. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of accurate. You know, there's something there if something was if something wanted to eat it. But everything got enough to eat and they didn't want to have that they didn't need to take that last bite out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I'm about to move pastures where my cows are now. Um, move them down into some lower lower ground. It's actually like 45 degrees here today. It's beautiful. And uh we got some weather coming in, so I'm gonna move them down onto some lower ground and where I'm gonna feed them for most of the winter too. There's still some grazing there left, but uh there is a section line right next to this pasture that they're in and uh I, I got them just hungry enough where I just fenced off that section line and turned them in there for the day and they, they are hammering it and there's a fine line between getting them hungry enough where they're going to tear down the fence and hungry enough where they're going to be standing at the gate waiting for you when they've been standing <laughs> at the gate for about five minutes waiting for you and none of them have tried to get on their knees and great yep. under the hot wire I think you did yeah. a good job, but when you go out there two hours before move time and they're all lined up grazing underneath the hot wire, yeah. maybe yeah, you, you should give them a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, that's the biggest thing is it's fun to learn and, and mess up and you can always adjust tomorrow. That's the best thing about using poly wire is if you messed up today and didn't give them enough, you can, you can redo it tomorrow and do a little bit better and, if, it, if you messed up real bad, you'll make a note and, you know, try to fix that spot or graze a little lighter next year. It just, just gives you so much flexibility. And I think that's something that, that we can spend a little bit of time talking about is when you are strip grazing and you're moving your cattle daily or, you know, multiple times a day, like some of our friends do, you're observing how you're getting that many more opportunities to observe animal behavior and animal performance. You're looking at, you know, gut feel, how full is the room and how content is this animal? You know, if you go out there and it's, it's time to move fences and your cows are just kind of milling around, they're not real excited. Well, they're probably full. They're probably content and they're, you know, they know why you're there, but they're not super, super hungry and they don't need to go rush and get and, and go fight and hustle to get the best stuff that's in that next paddock you're going to give them. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin, though, you know, it doesn't matter how careful you are. They will eventually get trained if you're doing it at the same time of day or if you come out in the same vehicle around the same time every day. They know what that means, and they know we're going to go get fresh grass about this time of day. So you may have to take some of that animal behavior with a grain of salt, but you, you can always tell if that animal is content. You can always tell if a rumen's full, and if she's content and a rumen's full at move time, you probably gave them enough groceries. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. And I've just found even doing this, you're, you're handling the cattle more. So you would think growing up or, or ranch, just being, just being a rancher in general, I think we all think we're pretty savvy around cows, but I've found my stockmanship 
has improved so much over the last two years, just from being out there and, like you said, observing cow behavior and um, understanding why they do what they do. Because you're out there so long, you kind of have a, a chance just to, you know, sit off and watch one walk around or do what you do. When before you're kind of out there in a hurry, you got multiple groups to check, check water, check salt and mineral, throw, dump a protein tub out the back, nothing's out, get out of there. But when they're all close to you and, and in a close proximity, you can observe them so much better. And, and like 60 of them in two acres. I mean, (laughs) they're right there. (laughs) You don't have to go very far to find all of them. Yeah. and, And it's, uh, it's, wild to see them eat plants you you didn't think they would eat like uh i don't know how many videos i took this summer uh we were so dry and so the only green things out there were the weeds and the goldenrod uh canada thistle and everything that um everyone wants to get rid of well the cows would go for that stuff first because that was the only green stuff and i wasn't supplementing any protein and that they went for that stuff first and they came through the the summer pretty good. Cows eat weeds, like, and that's usually the first thing that they'll go look for in a pasture is weeds. Like, they'll they'll walk by big blue stem, they'll walk by little blue stem, karama grass, buffalo grass to go find you know that yellow clover or the white clover. Sometimes they walk by it to go eat thistles. I I've seen them run into a new paddock and go eat yucca plants. <laughs> just the flowers or the actual uh green part of the plant too oh oh rip up the base of the plant okay oh, like wow. they'll awesome. rip the base out and eat the base of the leaves well they won't eat it they'll just they'll sit there and they'll chew it up and they'll have it sticking out of their mouth and once they get all the all the juices and the goo out of it they want they just spit it out but uh you're talking about the seed pods out of the yucca like the flower pods mm-hmm. like those yellow blooms i I got to try to get to some of those next spring before my cows do and, and see if I can't like determine what it is in there that the cows are really, really after, because I'm sure you've seen it. Like they will run over each other. They will fight each other to get those yucca flowers. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to see a cow run up to one of those and just wrap her tongue around that thing and jerk her neck straight up and peel six of those things right into her mouth. And then she goes to the next one, three feet away and does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like stuff like that's so cool because we just, I don't know, just with that with the conventional or traditional mindset, you just think of cows only eating grass and uh, they'll eat a whole hell of a lot more than that. If uh, if you if you can graze them right and treat it, treat them the correct way. Willow trees. I have, I have several of these cows that I have caught like the first day or two in a paddock. Like, OK, we're talking like. 165 cows in this in this herd right now in a 150 acre paddock like they're not starving trust me <laughs> but yeah. when when the second day in there when there's still green grass down the down the bottoms when they're going and eating willow trees it's not because there's nothing else to eat it's because they want to eat that willow tree but why i wish yeah. i knew why yeah there, there there's something in something in there they they want some some micronutrient or something they're craving and i'll say this like the conventional black commercial cattle or red commercial cattle not going to name any breeds don't want to 
make any breed associations upset with me this week. Not like I haven't done that before. Anyway, the, the English continental breeds, they don't, they don't go after that, that stuff as much as my Corrientes and Corriente cross cattle do. The Corrientes and Corriente cross cattle are way more adventuresome in their diet. And I don't know if that's because gut microbiome or, or generations of epigenetics and the commercial cows being, you know, held up with high energy feeds and corn. I don't know. Yeah. I'd I'd imagine that you're probably right about that, that it's probably epigenetics to a, to a certain extent. You know, there's four, 400 years of adaptation in a dry environment where maybe some years, all they had to eat was sticks and rocks. Well, it is, it is kind of neat because they're controlling some of those willow trees in places that, you know, I can't really get it. it willow trees are kind of impossible to control. The only really way to control a willow tree is to get a beaver. But we, <laughs> we can talk about those later. <laughs> I'll talk about beavers. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about beavers. Do you have any? Yeah, we have a few. Um, I'd like to have more, but beavers are, beavers are a controversial topic too. Um, and I understand people that don't like them, but I don't think they're very controversial at all. I think they're awesome. And I think people that don't like them just need to change their minds. Now, that being said, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> my buddy, Kevin owns a resort lake and there's this several series of ponds and a big lake and they can, they, they're kind of, they're kind of an issue for him. They can mm-hmm. cause kind of an issue for him. And my challenge would be to uh to the state governments and wildlife agencies you know i think most of us are starting to recognize the benefits of beaver like instead of encouraging people to trap them why don't we build a network of landowners that are willing to host them and then apply some of some public money to relocating them to where they are desired or where they would be welcome i think the biggest the biggest benefit would be obviously out here in the west where where it's drier and uh especially you get into the mountains out in california and oregon where they've had montana where they've had all these bad fires every creek drainage that there that there was used to be a series of beaver dams and around those beaver dams were riparian areas with lush green grass and you think of august and september right now where there's no beavers anymore those those creek beds are just dry and bare nothing in them. If we still had beavers out there and there were green plants in every creek bed, we'd probably not have so many problems with, with, with fires. I 100%, 100%. I would even go farther than that and say where I am here in the Red Hills, anything that's down in in the bottom of a draw or near a river or a creek that's currently being farmed, that all used to be underwater because it was dammed up by beavers. Yeah. And I bet you'd say the same thing up there in North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So how do we uh, go about bringing the beaver back and, and telling those farmers they can't farm $20,000 an acre farmland? <laughs> well, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it is a bigger issue, you know, water, water rights, especially in the West and the arid states. You know, I'm, I'm east of the hundredth meridian. 
but not by very much. Like I think I'm about 98, some 98 and a bunch of change. And so it's close. You get west of that hundredth, and water is so much more important, so much harder to come by. And not having beaver up in the mountains, not having beaver on the arid plains, you know, there where you are in North Dakota and South Dakota and Western Nebraska and Western Kansas. Um, not having beaver there. I, 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 let's back up. I struggle to, I struggle to imagine what it would, what that vast landscape would be like if it still had beavers. Like I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around like how much water should be on my ranch because of where beaver ponds are and where they, where I think they have been in the past. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of stuck in a place where I, I'm surrounded by na- neighbors that hate them. I have a neighbor and he's a good neighbor too, a, a real good guy, but he's got a motto and he says it in every conversation. He just has a hatred for beavers. The only good beaver is a dead beaver. He'll, he'll say that every conversation you have with them. And, uh, and he owns quite a bit of river bottom that that borders us and and yeah he he he'll walk that river ten times a year shooting beavers and and cleaning out beaver dams and just hates them so it's tough like I have the opinion that I do and I'd love to have beavers up and down but my neighbors are trying to kill them and then also uh, I have another neighbor that hires a government trapper to come out here and trap them so the government is subsidizing still subsidizing killing beavers and um i before government I, still subsidizes yeah. planting eastern red cedar trees and then like they'll give the next <sighs> landowner money to burn them down yeah and so it's it's a it's a it's a challenge and um there's just so many things about about uh, the agriculture mindset that that needs to change it's uh once you start realizing it, it just, you realize how many things are just aren't quite right do you think so much needs to change because we've been trapped in a culture that doesn't allow for challenging questions? Like for a long time, anytime you want to, ch- anytime you challenge any part of the traditional uh, production commodity system, whether we're talking about corn, soybeans, cotton, beef, chicken, or pork. You're you're basically told to shut up, sit down, get in line because we have to feed the world, right? Yeah. And that narrative is failing. And I think people are really starting to ask ask the right questions. I, I think it comes down to almost like a, a moral question. Like back when I was doing things more conventionally, I knew I was degrading the land. I didn't realize as to what what degree. Um, I was doing it, but I recognized that I was degrading the land and I had the attitude, well, better me than the next guy. The next guy is going to do the same thing. And I guess I feel I have the right to degrade this land. And I don't know if, if, if that's the mindset. Well, if you don't will. take it, somebody else will. Yeah, exactly. But I knew deep down that I wasn't doing things right. And it, it, it like the same thing kind of applies with, with the beaver, um, like, you know, deep down when you're doing stuff that isn't right with nature, like it doesn't feel good spraying, to me, doesn't feel good spraying pesticides, even though I have a business doing that, which is 
very ironic though i came to this mindset with a a pesticide spraying business but i, I, I was gonna ask about that <laughs> well but it's it's a necessary evil right now but no just doing things right by nature and having a thriving ecosystem that a beaver is a part of and just like nourishing or nurturing your, your landscape or your resources to try to create the most the, the best ecosystem you have instead of just looking at ranching like an extractive process or i'm going to extract this much out of this land this year instead of just seeing what you can get by just to see see what you can get by by working with nature instead of always trying to force nature and the the argument is there's no way that can be profitable but there's people that have came before us and probably you currently are um it can work you know it, it can be profitable and you don't always have to to go through the government subsidies and do what everyone else is doing to to to, to be profitable it's worked in every environment that it's been tried in and it has failed in every environment that it has been tried in. And the reason that people fail at regenerative agriculture is usually because they quit too early. They give up because it's not always easy. You know, it, it's not always easy. We're much more dependent on, mother nature than we are you know we're dependent on mother nature for everything by being able to go down to the the co-op and spend money and get a get an input or go flip a switch and make it rain because we have a center pivot or side rolls or whatever i forgot what i was going to say <laughs> <laughs> but we do, we're not looking for that input you know we don't we have to deal with a lower energy budget and we can't just go get that input. So there's going to be years that, yeah, you're going to have a crash and it might hurt more, but your successes are going to feel so much sweeter because it was all yours. And you don't have to, you don't have to share that credit with the fertilizer salesman with this or the seed salesman with this numerical variety. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, off that, one of the the challenges I've had with cover crops is I don't use fertilizer. So, Back in 2017, or I was talking about having my hay operation that I'd sell hay. So I realized, you know, obviously I was removing all that stuff over all those years, all those nutrients. It was like, okay, well, I got to add this shit back on. So in 2017, I spent $50,000 on fertilized, fertilizer to, to fertilize those hay fields. And we had a drought and when you broadcast fertilizer and you have a drought, that stuff doesn't just goes right back up into the air. So I may as well lit about 50 grand on fire. And so when I, that was the year I started farming too. And after that year, I said, I'm just not going to use fertilizer because you know, what's, if it's not going to work, what's the point of making the gamble. And so I think part of the, 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 uh, the struggles I've had with cover crops is that I'm going into it with no inputs. Um, and there's not a lot in the soil. And so it's a lot slower process, which I, I kind of knew what was good, that that was going to happen also, but man, on the, on, on dry years, stuff doesn't grow very well. <laughs> and it is dry. You know, I think, uh, I know you're dealing with drought. It's probably, you're probably a little bit deeper in a drought up there than we are here. We're just kind of where I'm at. We're basically on the edge and I'm thinking about drought today. Cause, um, 
in February, I've been invited to the Society for Range Management um, conference in Albuquerque in February to give a talk on drought management on a rancher panel. Um, actually, my friend Hobbs is going to be on that with me. So, oh, nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll mention some more about that uh, in a future podcast and make sure I have that on social media. But you, you mentioned something about drought earlier, and you're talking about it's dry. How, do you have a drought plan? Yeah, I do. So kind of implementing my, my, my drought plan already. Um, and actually, I, just from here on forward, I'm not going to – I'm just going to assume it's going to be a drought every year. I think you, you kind of have to just assume next year is going to be a, a drought and, and approach it that way. And uh, – so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Like we're getting ready to start grazing year 2022. I'm going to look at grazing year 2022 with the cow herd that I've got and say, I'm going to say that this is going to be a below normal year target 16, 18 inches of rainfall going to, you know, about 75 to 80% of my normal grass growth. And I'm going to budget to graze that. And for that to last the cows that I want to graze all the way to January 1st, 2023. Yeah. And I already, I have, because our growing season, we have a really short growing season. We grow pretty much all of our tonnage between May 15th and July 1st. And so we have a really short, our, our growing season goes from about May 1st through, or I don't know. I, there's stuff growing on April 1st, but we really don't have active growing until, until mid-May. So our active growing season, uh, mid-May through mid-July, and then our actual growing season goes, goes to, to mid-October. Um, and to be able to grow the amount of forage that, that I want to grow, I have found, especially where my soil health is at, is I have to stay off the new growth when it's actively growing like that. So I found it works best to go into stockpiled pastures until probably mid June. So that those are pastures that probably haven't been grazed in a year. And I try to give all my pastures at this point in, in, in soil health or um, our rainfall lately, I, I've just been planning for you graze it once you hammer it. And then, and then it has a whole year to regrow the whole growing season. And then maybe if I get regrowth, I can do a dormant season grazing. Um, on some pastures, but as far as growing season, one, one graze, and then the whole rest of the growing season, it has to regrow. So I guess that's my drought plan is I have probably uh, a thousand acres of pasture for in the spring that that's going to have that full year recovery and that, uh, that I'm not worried about that early season rainfall to kind of get stuff going. And then hopefully in that time, the, the pastures that I have grazed this last year that I, that I haven't stockpiled can can get that growth during that period from may to to july okay that's right now i'm i'm rotating probably every two weeks stock density is fairly low we're living on stockpiled warm season grass that's just dry drier than dry yeah. uh the expected or the normal fall moisture has failed to materialize so our, you know, normally we've got some nice, cool season grass everywhere. I don't have any. So, so I'm really having about, to hammer with alfalfa 
to keep protein levels up. You're, you're supplementing with some alfalfa? Yeah. Are you doing that in cubes or bales or how are you doing that? Bales. Uh, bales were cheaper. Bales were cheaper by about, bales were about half the cost of cubes this year. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, we got a uh, guy I'm commingled my cows with. Um, he got us a pretty good price on alfalfa. So, and do, do you go for like second, third cut, the fancy stuff, or just regular alfalfa is good enough? Do you, or do you have to make sure it's tested and it's at a certain protein level? Uh, he had this tested, and I think it was it was around 17, 18 percent. Oh, I'm not sure what cutting it is. He might have told me, I <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff usually doesn't matter a whole lot to me. Alfalfa, almost 20 percent. Good. I can, I can grow yep. that, but we've really had to step up. We're, um, we're feeding about five pounds a day right now. Do you, it, when you'd usually get your, your fall or, or regular moisture, do you have cool season grasses that grow all winter long? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, other than for maybe two to three weeks when the soil temperature is too cold, I'll have good cool season grass growth almost all year like it's you know we're talking about the weather i mean it's it's 73 freaking degrees here and it's four o'clock in the afternoon and we're, we're sitting here doing this podcast not that i'm not enjoying doing it but the bad thing is the wind tomorrow the wind oh, yeah. tomorrow holy crow i don't know if it's supposed to blow up there but it's supposed to blow here at 60 plus miles an hour we're not gonna be that bad but we're gonna uh, by tomorrow night, we're going to be uh, well below zero wind chill. So that'll be fun. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd trade you. <laughs> as dry as it is, tomorrow we're going to have single digit humidity, temperature oh, man. in 70s, and 60 mile an hour wind. So down there is right now the, your, your biggest fire season uh, over, over the winter in this kind of dormant period? I would say yes. Um, I would say yes. And usually we don't get this kind of ugly fire danger until much later in the winter and almost into spring. Like for this to be happening in, in December is not, uh, not normal. Yeah. I, I never really thought about that, about the, the Southern Plains until I started doing some trucking down there. We're, we're kind of lucky. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of snow, but we usually at least get enough that we don't have any, any fire danger in the winter but that gets to be a long time for you guys where everything is is brown and dry if you guys don't get those rains because the snow you know as long as it's cold it tends to stick around at least and you know if you get the air temperature we can get the air temperature you know down like under 50 degrees that really really helps a lot but once your air temperature is over 50 um and your humidity single digits it could be rough. It could be rough days, but when that temperature's over eighty and your single digits and your humidity, any any anything hot is going to start a fire that will rapidly establish and be very very difficult to control. Throw in sixty mile an hour winds, and I I don't know what I'm going to do. Turn on the fire radio and hide in the basement so I don't have to listen to the wind and wait for the page. <laughs> oh, yeah, when, those windy days are the are, are the worst. I can deal with cold and heat, but Man, when it's windy, it uh, it's it's miserable to do anything. It it's just the noise. You just can't get away from the noise, and it's so much extra work to even just try to stand up and move around. Everything you're doing is fighting you. Every 
nothing wants to go right. But usually when the wind's blowing that bad, the cows just want to go. They just want to go stand in a canyon and be out of it. They don't want to get up and travel and be out in it. Yeah, another grazing question for you. So uh, usually when you're winter grazing, you said you get some some regrowth. So do you try to go over all your pasture once in the winter and kind of do a dormant season graze on everything, or, or kind of what's your what's your winter grazing strategy? I'm on pace to go around twice this year uh, in this dormant season, and I'm actually I'm starting to slow that down. You know, as we get further and further away from a rain, I'm starting to slow that down so I get more days of rest in front of me. Um, and I might even have to step up, you know, feeding a little bit more alfalfa, you know, go to, you know, feeding two days in a row, then skip a day, then a day, then skip, then two, you know, just, just to get some more poundage in them so they can utilize the stockpile that I've yeah. got. Cause I was, I was really, really counting on having at least some cool season stuff, some cool season growth, but it's been so freaking dry. There's nothing. I mean. I still have some in front of me that, you know, we, that we're living off of from, you know, October, November moisture, but it's going to be slim pickings after about, uh, after about first January. Do you have a strategy where you feed your alfalfa bales like autumn pasture when you're supplementing protein? I'm trying all different stuff. So I've got a bunch of areas uh, where the soil is really thin and really poor right on top of a gypsum layer. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Come out soil health guru tell me how to graze this gypsum rock better to make it grow grass like the only thing i'm going to do is be able to add organic matter in there chip it up stir it up add urine so savory would have told you to put a temporary fence fence around and lock the cows on there for that night yeah i'm sure somebody told me to do that but uh <laughs> you know, it, it gets back to a labor thing right yeah for sure <laughs> you know we talked about that earlier that it's so much less labor to put them all in one herd and move them every day I wish that I wish I could practice what I preached on that. The way my ranch is broken up, I've got highways and county roads running through the thing. So I've got three big pieces and then another 250 acre pasture off by itself, separated by roads. And yeah, I know plenty of guys move up and down roads all the time. It's a blacktop highway with literally 200 trucks going down it every day. Okay. Yeah, I could move across it. I could move down it. We got to stop traffic. I got to have a bunch of extra riders and a sheriff escort to be safe because there's so much truck traffic on the road. Can it be done? Yes. Is it a practical thing? Not really. So I basically run the ranch as, as three ranches that just kind of happen to be adjacent to each other. So I generally have at least three cow herds. I've had as many as five different cow herds on the ranch at the same time being managed differently uh the year i had five five herds that was 2020 i had uh i had a young lady named megan working for me and two of those herds we strip grazed and then uh one of them moved about then two of them moved like every other day just about another one moved about every week or so so it i don't always practice what i preach about having one herd and about having things simple but you know I also live 10 miles away and yeah, it'd be great to be able to go out some nights and, you know, tease them with a little feed, get them onto one of those areas, lock them up behind polywire, then go home, be able to come back out there first thing in the morning, take that polywire up and let him go. If I had one herd of cows. I could probably do some more stuff like that. Yeah. 
or if you know, work was a little bit closer. So you know, it comes back to that labor question. And you know, we talk about, we kind of open up by talking a little bit about mental health. And we both grew up in ranching, right? The mindset is you get up when the sun comes up, you go, you, and then you don't go to the house till the sun goes down. And if you can still stand, you didn't work hard enough. You know, if your hands aren't bleeding, you're not working. If you're not working six and a half days a week, you're not working hard enough. If you're not making enough money, just go work harder. It'll fix it, right? That's the mindset. We've, we've got to blend that in agriculture with the nine to five mindset. You know, farming ranch is not a nine to five job, never has been, never will be unless you're maybe a contract chicken grower or contract hog grower and you clock in and clock out every day and you work for Tyson. That's what now we're talking about. Like in, in our line of work, it's never nine to five. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a big, big leap I've had to, to make is, you know, especially after I got in, into, into some debt is you just want to work nonstop to get yourself out of it. And um, I mean, in 2020, we started a meat business and, and still doing the oil field thing and, and then been ranching. Um, something had to, had to give, but I was trying to do some custom farming too. And you just kind of run yourself into the ground. I saw a, a picture of myself uh, yesterday of for, for, that I took in April 2020 when I was seeding, and I just looked absolutely miserable. And uh, kind of realized after 2020 that we need to. This isn't the way we want to live our lives, and some things had to change. And so we get so that needs to be part of our context or 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 what we want to work towards is we want to still have free time. We want to be able to go to the lake on the weekend or have, have fun with friends. And so one of the steps we did, we actually sold off all of our hang equipment here this, this last year to, first of all, that, that was one of the areas we were losing money and was, was putting up hay. How After bad did put, your dad freak out when you sold the hay equipment? Uh, well, my, my dad actually passed, uh, in 2015, oh, but, oh no, no, no big deal. But he was pretty good. Um, he, I think when I left and said I wasn't going to come back, I think he was pretty hurt by that. And when I came back, he really didn't push me or nudge me in any direction. I think he was just so happy that I came back. And he's like, you can do whatever every, every you want. So I, I sold a couple of his tractors that he told me to never sell. And that, you know, that's an emotional deal. You think they're just chunks of iron, but, you know, they've been around the place since, you know, longer than you, <laughs> or longer, you know, ever since you can remember. And, and some Every of that stuff, piece uh, of iron on the ranch has <laughs> yeah. an emotional, sentimental story attached to it. Yeah. And it's, it's stupid when you, when you really think about it, but Hey, it's, it's, it, they're, they're genuine emotions. And so that, uh, he would have. I think he would have supported the the decision just just uh, because of the situation, but it was still difficult because of those reasons. Of you know, I told him he told me not to sell those those tractors, but you know, he, he can't buy them back from me. So, <laughs> well, the way the the price of things on the used market right now, God, it's there. There are some iron that was good investments. Like uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday, um, he saw a 4840 John Deere tractor 
with like 12,000 hours on it sell for $75,000. Like, I think that's about three times what it cost when it was new. Yeah, I wish I would have did what, that well on my stuff. I didn't. I ended up not doing that great, but it ended up being a, a, a chunk of money that I able to. Um, also, with the NRCS equip, in addition to the uh, um, the cover crops I'm putting in, I'm got signed up to do a bunch of water infrastructure, and to do that, you know, you have to pay for it first, and then they reimburse you. So you need a for you know, I put in a mile long uh, stretch of pipeline buried it six feet deep and did a road bore and put in a couple of tanks. That was just one project I did. And I mean, by the time it was done, that was over $40,000. And so I kind of helped me bankroll some, some uh, water infrastructure. And so that I can graze some of those hay fields I was haying. And, and so it, it'll pay for itself in the long run, but it, uh, it was a tough thing to do, but I think, I think it was necessary. You've got a trench in six feet. Yep. Yeah. If we don't trench in six feet, it freezes. Uh, we get away with like two feet here. What, yeah, what does it cost? What does it cost per foot to trench six feet? Um, I think it's uh going rates about two thirty a foot. Well, that's not bad. No, it, it's not. It's not too terrible. I think it was. I think it's about a dollar a foot here to put one in. So. I, I, I thought it'd be a lot more than that since you got to go so much deeper. Yeah. But a, a lot of the, I started a lot of the water infrastructure I put up this summer is I put up a bunch of uh, above ground line for, for just summer pasture in winter pasture. I found you kind of only need one watering point, like per piece of ground or cause cows can trail back in the winter and they're not going to do a whole lot of damage. And I um, think they'll go a lot farther in the winter than they're mm-hmm. willing to go in the summer. And then sometimes there's snow on the ground and they'll, they'll supplement. I mean, right now we got a little bit of snow and they're barely going through, through any water. I, I have a hundred and hundred and 150 cows and they're going through under a thousand gallons of water a day right now. Um, they're just not going, going through much. So it's, it's, it's amazing in the winter, just their, their water needs. And so I started laying out a bunch of above ground line and, you know, obviously I have to have it drained and everything on hook before about mid October, but that that works really well too and i don't i don't know why more people don't do that i i it, it, it's and then if you want to move it you can just hook a chain to it and drag it behind the four-wheeler to, to move you know that black pipe and it's pretty tough so what how big what diameter pipe was that that was inch and an inch and a quarter and it's the same stuff kind of, i was using did you have how did you get around that pipe picking up a lot of heat in the summer where you just use a short run? I didn't. Uh, that was one thing I was concerned about because by the time that water gets the tank, and we, we were hot this summer, we had a lot of days over 100 degrees. That water was pretty hot by the time I got to the tank. Um, I mean, luckily the cows drank it and they still still um, they still did all right. I, I know Clay Conry's talked about this on his podcast because he was worried about that too. And I can't remember who he talked about, but... Um, he said that we need to quit anthropomorphs. We need to quit treating cat, thinking of cattle like they're people. Like if it's, it's too a hard, hard word. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, and uh, they don't have the same feelings as us, so maybe they don't think that water's hot. But I don't know how they couldn't think it's hot. But some people say <laughs> that 
they they've seen it so hot where the cows won't drink it. I never saw that. They were they were still uh, drinking it pretty good for me this summer. I don't know. Have you had any experience with that? I didn't. I only set up my my portable water system a couple times this year, and I only used one stick of pipe, which is five hundred foot for me. Um, and that was just to do some mineral water um, to to get some mineral water out for my cows that Steve Campbell talks about that I learned about in an episode on Clay Connery's podcast. You know, this Clay Connery guy, he's got this other podcast. That's, Sorry for mentioning him. Yeah, it's it's kind of okay. People might want to go check it out. It's called Working Cows. He's He's got a few episodes. He's He does an okay job. But anyway, uh, it was Working Cows 160. Steve Campbell was talking about mineral water. Yep. And strangely enough, like, I listened to that episode while I'm out there looking at these cows. And I go, I see that. I see that cadmium. I can see that. So I got my water, got my Tomcat water system set up, you know, got it, got things moved around, got some C90, like the salts, the easy part to find the second water tank, the pump, that's easy to find. The hardest part about setting up that whole mineral water gag is finding a freaking burlap sack to use as a tea bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Man, I'd like to never find a burlap sack. I thought I asked everybody there, everybody in the world. And then I was sitting there and we're like, we're down to like maybe getting, you know, like one of those new style, really plastic feed bags and just poking a whole bunch of holes in it and trying that as a tea bag. I'm like, I'll just call my buddy, Nate, who runs the ranch North of me. Like Nate and I, I've taken in Nate's cattle for 13 years. Our fathers ran cattle together out here in the Red Hills. We've met. <laughs> so I called Nate. He's like, hey, I need a favor. He's like, what's up, buddy? I said, I need a burlap sack. You know where I can get one? He's like, yeah, I got one right here. I can run it over. I'm like, oh, no shit. I've been looking for a burlap sack for like three days. I've called everybody. <laughs> Nobody had one. You've got like, a, and he had a stack of them in his shop. So how, how did that work out with you putting, uh, putting that tea bag of, of salt in. So you had two tanks, right? Okay. So, and then, and, and then, and then one, you put the tea bag in or did you alternate days? Okay. So I've got, I have my 16 foot fiberglass tank. That's gravity fed for my solar system, like with 18,000 gallons of storage. So that's up on top of the hill. I, I drug my Tomcat pump trailer out one piece of pipe and my Tom and my, uh, and my 250-gallon portable pond, okay? So I had to build a little stand for the pump, for the Tomcat. I just threw it in the bottom of the stock tank, turned it on, you know, connected it to the portable pond, filled it up. Okay, got water down here. I put 100 pounds of salt in that tea bag and dropped it in there and came back in two hours, and it was gone. Wow. The cows had drank it all. I put another 100 pounds of salt in the bag, and left came back in the morning and it was gone do you have free choice salt out there already um yeah when we like when i started feeding the c90 back in back in june i started putting out free choice and we started and then we did the mineral water and we did it uh we only did it twice okay i only had it out for two days but in those two days i mean that was like it was 350 maybe 400 pounds of salt that that went through that mineral water and it was immediate 
like it was immediate and not every animal turned around and i'm not i'm not saying that it's a miracle fix all but i had several cows that had pink eye pretty bad i had a couple cows that were suffered from some some feet issues i had one that the day before i i put the mineral water out like i'd been watching this cow and she'd kind of been going downhill for a while i was gone for a couple of days came back looked at her was like oh man she looks freaking horrible like she looked bad enough i would have shot her <laughs> if she didn't have a calf but she was nursing a freaking calf blind in one eye losing it in the other and probably didn't weigh 500 pounds but she was still nursing a calf so mineral water twice that cow i can still find her she still looks like crap but she's alive and it, her eyes are clear her feet are fine so the two rounds of mineral water we did after that, like prior to that, we we're really like pink eye problems were on the rise. Like we we're heading towards a pink eye wreck. Mineral water stopped at dead in its tracks. We've also been feeding free choice uh, C90 ever since then. It's they've always had it available. So was it the mineral water with you know the, the C90 mineral water or was it the C90? I don't know, but I think I think that mineral water has so much more of an effect, like it's so much more bioavailable than when they lick the salt and then it has to dissolve in their room. And I think it's just, I think it's just a shot direct into the direct into the metabolism when they drink that mineral water. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I started using that. Uh, well, I started using uh, independent salt company stuff. Is that, is that similar? They're in Kannapolis. Yeah. Kansas independent salt. Yep. Yep. Um, and I started using it this summer and it, I, it worked great. It's amazing. You know, I just have it free choice. I haven't done the mineral water thing yet, but uh, it's definitely something I'm going to try. Like you said, if you notice it, your cows are noticeably lacking. Uh, the important thing with that mineral water deal is like the undissolved solids that are in the bottom of your tea bag and that are in the bottom of your tank. Don't put those anywhere where you ever want anything to grow. Oh yeah. Okay. So that's the stuff. Yeah. Take that stuff out, dump it where you, you know you're you're doing your weed spraying on on lease roads and around tank. Because <laughs> it, it could be some ugly stuff. I mean, I, I don't know yeah, what it, it is, makes sense, but you know, if it's not going to get dissolved in water, if it comes out of the sea water or you know ancient sequestered salt like uh, Kansas mm -hmm. Independent, and it doesn't dissolve back into water, it's not bioavailable. I mean, it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That make that that makes sense. But I've been really impressed with that stuff. You can really tell uh, when you go from like a green pasture where obviously they're getting a lot of their, their minerals and everything they need from the grass. And then as the summer moves along and the grass kind of cures out and they'll start hammering that more and more because they're able to get less and less minerals out of, out of, out of the grass. And I was really impressed, impressed this summer because, man, when it was, it was real dry there for, for about a month and a half and I didn't have any protein and everything was brown and all they were getting was that salt and um they they held they held together great and i didn't i didn't i had a couple of cows that had foot rot that i had to, to shoot with some uh draxum but i never had any pink eye and a lot of people up here had pink eye issues and i don't know i think that that stuff works really great in conjunction with the type of grazing we do see i think out of my calves only one of mine we had to dart and we only darted one of my cows 
she had foot rot like bad and it, kind of funny is you know uh, last year all last year we were strip grazing like kind of worked this cow into almost a pet like she would come up let me rub on her she'd eat cake out of my hand well she gets foot rot and i got to shoot her with a dart a dart full of draxon one time and now she won't ever come near me again <laughs> like i how does she even know that that was me i was in the gator like almost 100 feet away like how does she know that was me and you're just trying to help her yeah i was just trying to I'm help grateful. <laughs> yeah, just just come over here. I just want to let you eat this, you know, eat this candy out of my hand. Huh. Yeah. Um, of the calves, we we only had to dart one calf, and the criteria was, you know, we we're watching them. You know, like I said, we I, we thought we we both thought we were kind of headed towards a wreck because I think we had to dart four or five of of my partner's calves had several of his cows we were really really keeping an eye on um and we wanted to keep the antibiotics out of them so we let them get one eye but when they got the second bad eye that's when you get a dart mm -hmm. and we did the same for the cows too so just apply that blanket policy on the whole herd because you know like i talk about all the time we're trying to shift everything to low input low maintenance low requirement you know all as much of an all-natural cow herd as we can so but the mineral water, that had to it had to have helped. Like ever yeah. ever since we put that out there, the pink eye problems cleared up, the feet cleared up. Um, some of the like the structural issues like the that Steve Campbell talks about on that working cows 160, uh, <laughs> with the, that looked like a cadmium uh toxicity problem. And I that's where they're that. like kind of humped up in the back. Yeah, humped up in the back with the uh, like the spine is ridged and humped a little bit. Okay. With kind of with a pronounced dip before the tail head. Okay. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I was hearing. And I saw a lot of that. And after we did the mineral water twice and have been feeding free choice salts, you know, ancient sequestered C90 or Kansas independent or Redmond's conditioner. I think that's what Steve Campbell recommends. I'm not going to argue with him. Um, <laughs> having that out there i think has corrected a lot of those mineral imbalances and that cadmium toxicity and he makes a point about like a lot of these cow minerals that we've been getting we didn't know we were getting from china and where's their quality control you know and does a cow really need that does a cow really need all those fancy supplements that they yeah, really yeah. Need that fancy mineral package yeah, I did a I did a tick I did I did a TikTok video, kind of on this or and on inputs, and it, it it's just a mindset where people think the more money they spend on their cows, the more vaccinations they put into them, the more wormer they put into them, the more protein tubs they buy, the better their cows are, and I guess I used to kind of have that mindset too, but when you really look at it, the return on an investment just isn't there. It's just it's kind of kind of just those companies preying on ignorance a little bit. Well, I think some of the like a seven-way BRD vaccine, blackleg, pasturella, some of those things I think are necessary. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For some sure. Of, but there's a lot of them that that are not, and I think that a lot of vaccines and and a lot of health programs and veterinary protocols that producers use on their cow herds like 
are self-fulfilling prophecies almost. You know, if we didn't use them, we wouldn't have to use them. But since they exist and we've been using them, they're always going to need to be used. Like, the, does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. If you do always what you, you what you've always done, you're always going to have what you always have. And yeah, if you if you use if you use pour on, you're always going to have to use it. You're never going to be able to to work work your way away from it. And same goes. I think I think the two things that bother me most uh, are protein tubs and and pour on, both of which I don't I don't think I think about ninety five percent of the time they aren't needed. You see a lot of people that'll just dump protein tubs out on overgrazed pasture. Well, that pasture, those cows probably don't need any protein. They're probably <laughs> that's probably all they're getting is protein because they're nipping off that that little regrowth. They, what they need is is carbon <laughs> like they they need they need energy and, old crappy dry bales yeah and that's one thing that bothers me and then just the way people relentlessly pour cows and think it's somehow working and i don't know about your area but it it doesn't work at all up here it doesn't work for lice it doesn't work for flies you know it'll work for two weeks but everyone does it in the spring and fall just without asking any questions or even does this work and or even asking the question what damage are we doing to our you know to our land and to our ecosystem by adding what i believe is a pretty useless input at least up here in northern climate i know we have less problems with parasites and flies and stuff up here but um i really i those are two things that just kind of perplex me okay when I bought my cows in 2020, I am not doing any pour on. We're not worming them. If I think they need to be wormed, we're going to go out. We're going to look at the manure and do fecal egg counts. Then we lived through the blizzard of, you know, the, the polar vortex bomb of February 2021. And as soon as it warmed up after that, I started noticing my cows had lice. And they didn't really, they weren't cleaning up into late April like I'd expect them to. The lice wasn't really spreading. We came through and I used some pour on. Um, forget the exact product that we used, but I made sure that it was one of those things that, you know, <clears throat> was, was labeled safe for dung beetles. Because, of course, you know, dung beetles are a priority. And a few cows also had some ticks. And okay, I'm going to take some heat for that because of the way the winter was. I didn't plan things out that well. And when that polar vortex was coming in February, I pretty much stayed in the same paddock that I'd already been for maybe a little bit too long, but I still had grass down there and it had places for them to get out of the wind and the cold. It's a choice I made and I got to live with the consequences. A quick question about, so... They, when they had lice, you were seeing like big rub patches on them? Yeah, from the shoulders forward, like shoulders and neck, from the pole back. And we were seeing quite a few of them get ticks, like ear ticks. Okay. Um, and then when you when you poured, you saw that the, the lice kind of cleared up? Five days. Five days? Yeah. We were done, done rubbing. So that was in the winter of 2020, 2020. Was that last winter, you mean? Yeah, that was 21. Yeah. 
Okay. This year. It, uh, so what's your plan for this winter then? Uh, well, I'm on a different part of the ranch. We're going to keep rotating. I'm not going to stay anywhere more than a week. You know, keep supplementing with alfalfa. Just keep watching them. Um, more than likely, we're probably going to want to go ahead and do a pour on just for lice and ticks again in the in the late spring before when we work calves. So, like, what's your plan in the future? Are you going to eventually try to wean off of that, or is that just going to be part of something you have to do? Uh, I something I'd like to get away from. So, I don't have EIDs in all of my cows, but all of my, all of my calves, all of my yearlings, they all have an EID. So we're going to be keeping track of those as, as I grow all those heifers, the ones that, you know, the ones that, you know, got poor on, but didn't look like they needed all the, the ones that look like they're fine with a hair, you know, with not having any, you know, lice or tick pressure. That's definitely, you know, a plus in the book, right? The yep. ones that, you know, the ones that have the shitty hair coat, they're getting ate up with lice and ticks. I don't care how well they conform, you know, to, to the box I'm looking for to put their body in. They're not, you know, they're not disease. They're not ticking. They're not uh, pest resistant enough to fit the program long-term. That doesn't mean they're not going to stick around for a little while. You know, just for numbers, you know, doesn't yep. mean they're not going to stick around and be productive. So those ones, so those ones that are a little bit more resistant, are you pouring those as well, or are you leaving those, or are you pouring them and then just marking them that this cow isn't having the problem? Oh no, I'll have to make that decision next spring. <laughs> but, um, and I'm not saying like, you know, everybody's situation is different, and I'm just saying up here, we're in a we're in a cold, dry environment where we're at, and and we don't have the parasite pressure that that you guys down in the south you know, farther south do. So I'm not, I'm not saying a blanket statement for everyone. I'm just saying, as far as my observations around here, I think there's a lot of unneeded, unneeded pouring. I think there's a lot of unneeded pouring around here too. And a lot of, you know, a lot of things that are unnecessary around here too. And, you know, that being said, I don't have the problems that somebody like, uh, like somebody would have down on the Texas coast or down Louisiana or down in Florida or or anywhere else we all have a different problem we're all facing different challenges with climate with forage with the species mix of forage and with the you know even with the pest load the the native pests that are going to affect our cattle they're different everywhere and in some areas you know a, a a dewormer product might work and it might not work you know what works for me won't work for you even though we're looking at what may seem to be a similar pest because of past overuse of that chemical in an area which yeah you know that that's something else that just blows my mind like oh well everything's resistant to this this molecule now so let's just make something even more toxic <laughs> yeah that's that's not going to work for very much longer no no it def definitely isn't so I still want to, I want to hear your thoughts on feedlots. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tell me what you think about feedlots. Well, I, I don't want to piss them off too bad. They still got to buy my calves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. I think where uh, we're at right now, I think, I think, I think they're necessary. Just, um, well, we're just not set up to do anything different. You know, they're, they're, for, for that model to change, 
I don't know how it would even be possible at this point. Would it have to come from the government, like banning KFOs or or? Do you think it changes, or do you think that those customers just simply age out and aren't replaced? Do you mean like people that that want feedlot beef yeah. or like corn fed beef? Yeah, and it, you know we don't have to restrict it to just you know feedlot or corn fed yeah. beef, but like I've started to think lately, and I'm. I may have said this on the podcast and forgive me if I repeat myself every week. Um, I, I'm really starting to think that I repeat myself too much. Shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Well, I never really gave okay, my thoughts. Well, I, I think, I think feedlots, like I said, they're, they're necessary now, but they're, they're just so inefficient and so relying on, on fossil fuels that, you know, there's studies that say that there's a less environmental footprint than, than grass-fed beef. And that, you know, that just doesn't take into the entire entire carbon footprint yeah. that, that people have. You have to use fossil fuels to, to, to seed that crop, harvest the crop, or seed the crop, fertilize the crop, spray the crop, harvest the crop, truck the crop to the feedlot, feed the crop, and then haul the manure back out onto some field not the field that it came or not the field of the crops came from and and then spread that out it is just so reliant on on fossil fuels and so how much longer is are we going to have cheap fuel and i know people are bitching about high fuel prices right now but this is nothing like what happens if diesel's 20 dollars a gallon how how are we going to feed the world then? Like that's people's argument. Oh, if we don't have feedlots, how are we going to feed the world? Well, if diesel's twenty dollars a gallon, how the hell are we going to feed the world? I don't think it has to be twenty dollars a gallon. So no, yeah, you're right. There's I'm really what I was saying. So I've been thinking that, we're, like, it, it's regenerative agriculture. It's almost a hearts and minds game, right? It's it's hearts and minds. It's connecting people with their food. That's why we're being, that's why a lot of us are successful in regenerative agriculture because we're willing to be open and vulnerable, tell the story, the open, honest, naked truth of beef from calf to plate. The, the, the guys that are heavily invested in that feedlot, CAFO production commodity system, they don't want you to see what goes on behind the curtain once that calf is weaned. Right, they think that there's this magical process that you wean a 400 pound calf that somehow magically gets turned into box beef, and there's nothing evil or nothing environmentally destructive in between. Don't don't look at that. Don't film that. Don't show that anywhere. Right. So that being said, circling back to what I was talking about earlier when I lost my train of thought, the the people that are bought into that system that are invested in that system and that consume that product that really enjoy that product. You're not going to take away much of that demand. You're not going to take away much of that desire. You know, you'll convert somebody here or there, or maybe somebody will eat a little bit less. Let's just call it CAFO CAFO product and start eating more grass fed, grass fed, grass finished product. That ratio is not going to change. Where we make, where the regenerative agriculture is making huge strides is in new customers. And the customers that we're getting are the young ones. Okay. 
we're not getting the 60 year old, you know, we're not getting the 60 year old city dweller that's, you know, love to go down to Golden Corral every Sunday and have a steak. And they love the taste of that. That's fine. There's plenty of people in a world like that. We're getting the foodies. We're getting the people that are passionate about their health. We're getting the people that are passionate about, that care about the environment. We're getting the people that are just now starting to make money and spend their own money in the marketplace and determine through the power of, of their spending dollar, they're voting with their spending dollars. And that's what they're, they're giving us market signals. It was just a couple of years ago that, excuse me, grass fed beef was growing at 13% per year. I think, uh, I think this was 2019. I heard these numbers fall of 2019 grass fed was growing at 13% a year. But normal, but regular beef demand, yeah, it was like two and a half or two point nine percent, thirteen percent growth. I'll put that in perspective. That means the demand is going to double in something like six or seven years. So we've got to double the grass-fed, grass-finished market in five years, five to seven years. We've got to double it, and then double it again in the same interval in order to keep up with 13% growth. That's incredible. Yeah, that sounds great. That 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 paints a pretty, pretty we are, future. And we're not taking customers away from grain-fed CAFO beef. If we are, we're not taking enough for them to notice it. So I think, you know, we're not going to convert very many of those people. They're going to age out. They're going to continue consuming that product until they die. And then they're just going to age out and they're not being replaced by another consumer of that product. Why, why do you think in the agriculture community, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are get so passionate and fired up about feedlots and they're people that um, aren't necessarily like directly involved, but they're like feedlot adjacent. Like I am, like I sell my calves to a feedlot in the fall. So it's like people like that that are so passionate that no, this model is working. This is how, 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 why we need to do this. Why, why is they're invested in why, and benefiting? Why, why is the egg community like, so why, why, why do they want to take up that fight? I, I don't understand why that's the hill they're willing to die, die on. It doesn't make sense to me. Like it, it doesn't make sense to me. It only makes sense really when you think about it in the context that they don't understand what's really going on behind the curtain. Like they don't understand that, you know, all these, all these corn and soybean subsidies that get approved in the farm bill that every, (laughs) that everybody's Senator representative loves to brag about how much they support farmers, all those crop subsidies, all those grain subsidies are a handout to the packers are foreign owned like when i see somebody willing to stand on a hill and die on a hill and defend feedlot beef i mean we talked about this a couple weeks ago with uh, philip meese carnivore bar we basically feed these cattle to the point where we're giving them fatty liver disease like we're feeding them to the point where they're basically getting diabetic and getting fatty liver disease 
but we're doing them a favor because we kill them before they die <laughs> from, from the disease that we give them because of the, of the diet that we force down, that we force them to eat. And these animals, you know, we're, we're feeding them a, a ration that's too hot, that's burning up their livers, that's burning up their lungs, that's making them sick. And in order to counteract that, while they're standing in these small pens, ankle deep in their own piss and shit, to keep them healthy, we're just going to mass feed antibiotics. Like, I haven't said this before on a podcast, and I'm not going to name any names. And I'm not even going to be very specific. <laughs> but I was in a room with over 100 other people, and we listened to a feedlot vet that worked for a big name ranch. Tell us that his vet protocol had two different categories. Everything that came on the yard was either high risk or low risk. Okay. The high risk cattle coming off the truck, got a shot of Jackson. The low risk cattle coming off the truck, got a shot of Bay Trail 200. Like, and this is a, this is a ranch system that runs a hundred thousand a year. Now you're going to now sit there. Now sit there and tell me that nobody else does that, that they're the only ones that do that. That's horse shit. That's yeah, horse that, shit. That's, that's protocol at every feedlot in the country. Yeah. It's, it's confusing. And, and why wouldn't they want, okay, let's say we're not, uh, we're not coming after necessarily how you feed your cattle but maybe just the large operations. Why wouldn't we want more of those feeding operations if you're so passionate about it? Why aren't there, we need to get more farmer feeders again. That way at least that system that brings in all this forage and, and all this feed from, from miles and miles around into these huge feedlots, feed we at least keep it a little bit local or go back to a more localized system where there's a lot more farmer farmer feeders and they can get that manure back out into their land and it's not just all these nutrients just coming come to this one central location and then you have you know a hundred thousand cattle in a feedlot i'd love to see the return of the farmer feeder where you know everybody up and down the platte river valley or the arkansas or the arkansas river valley or over the ogallala aquifer had 500 or a thousand cows you know had a 500,000 cow feedlot and they finished their own stock from shit they grew on their farm mm -hmm. like, and everybody had their own branded beef program and i'd love it but yeah, i don't think we, that that's a realistic reality no and if we could ever get back to that that place that's not a very big leap then to getting those cows out of the lot and then just grazing whatever forage is out on the fields whether it's cover crops or grazing corn but i think the first step needs to be probably getting back our farmer feeders and I don't know how the hell we do that. <laughs> I, well, how did we lose them? I mean, I, I don't know that because I I don't have much of a memory of, of a lot of, quote, farmer feeders around here. I kind of have maybe this, like, oh, highly idealistic thought in my head about what a farmer feeder should be. But what do you, what do you, what, what does that mean to you? Guess a farmer that that grows crops and and either has a, also has a cow herd or grows crops and then um, 
uses some of that forage, whether it's grazing crop rev- uh, residue or has silage and then brings in, buys, buys yearlings to, to background them or, or to finish cattle just, you know, on, on their operation. But not somebody who's growing primarily a cash crop, somebody who's primarily growing a forage, forage crops. Yeah. Yeah. But you could, there'd be a way to, you know, blend the two systems by incorporating some, some cover crops and kind of having a diverse system. And, but, you know, a little bit like what Gabe Brown has where he's got a, you know, sells crops for commodities, but then incorporate cover crops and, and grazing crop residue. But there's so many guys now that are just specialized either cattle or, or crops. And I mean, they tore out the, the feed pens probably 15 years ago and a lot of that infrastructure is gone. So it'd be a pretty, pretty tough transition back. But I mean, we got to do something sooner or later. You, you, what, what do you think the path forward is? What do you think happens? Do we just keep going like this? Ah, uh, you know, it's, there's so much there to unpack, you know? So breaking up big feedlots, getting back to, you know, more of a small scale farmer feeder where, you know, finished putting the craft back into finishing beef. I mean, grass finishing beef is a craft. I have very little concept of that. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit, like, don't ask me how to, don't ask me how I'm finishing animals on grass. Cause I haven't done one yet. I haven't peeled and eaten one that I've done yet. I'm still working on that. And hopefully by the time that I need to know, I'll know, but it's an art and you take away, you take away the iPad, you take away, you know, these fancy apps, you fire the nutritionalist. Okay. How do you know how you're feeding your cow? Look at the manure path. It's pretty easy. You know, you, you gotta, we gotta bring back some of these skills of, of just observation of the animal and how the animal's functioning. Cause what science says is you feed this kind of animal, this kind of diet, and it's going to do this. Well, yeah, that works. But what else is happening in there? You know, like, are, are we giving them acidosis? You know, we're, they're getting lesions on their lungs. They're getting liver acidosis, fatty liver disease. Like, why is this happening? Why is this <laughs> happening, nutritionalist? What, what can we feed our cows to keep them healthier longer? Oh, it, some of it is, some of it came from the BSE scare. Like, you can't, it's under 26 months, right? Animals under 26 months don't have to be checked for BSE over 26 months. I think it costs like an extra 250 or $300 in processing because of the special handling because of the BSE risk of an animal over 26. So we got to cram them into feedlots. We have to feed them all this super, super high energy feed and blow them up to 1800 pounds before they're 26 months old or 28 months old. So they don't have to, you know, take the BSE precautions, you know, and I know you said something about this. We just said like 1800 pounds, like big cows, big framey cows. They're great for making the Packer money. Great for making the Packer money. Absolutely terrible for making the cattleman money. If the cattleman wants to make any money. Small frame cows are where it's at. Yeah. And I fell victim to victim to that too. I, my cow herd is still, 
too big when I was in the conventional model. I was looking at EPDs and chasing weaning weights and uh, my cows. I run a Semitol Angus mix kind of right now, but I'm moving back towards Angus, more more just straight Angus. But I mean, my cows right now are 14, 1500 pounds and they're too, they're too big. Um, and they, they go through more feet. So uh, this summer I had some custom grazers out here. Some I, I ran some some yearlings that have a little bit of low line in them. They're like a quarter low line. And uh, they were yearling heifers. And when I got them, they were only about 650 pounds. And uh, when they left here, they were probably about uh, 800, 800, 850 pounds. And just seeing how little forage those, like two of those yearling heifers ate less than my one of my one of my cows <laughs> and it just it, it definitely made me realize that you know just how much more these these big cows eat and so we've been this epd model that's been pushed on us that we need to chase these high milking cows high high weaning weight cows that's comes from the packer down they just want these big frames so, so they can hang you know, they, they can have 1600 pound finished animals, 15, 1600 pound finished animals. And the argument is you get paid more for those, but what is the, your feed efficiency to get that cow up there? I mean, it's a lot, I, I have done a little bit of, I haven't done a lot of it, but I've been doing the grass finished beef thing for, for a couple of years. So I finished, finished quite a few cattle on, on, on grass and it's, you can do it. But it, it, it takes longer and you need the right kind of feed and it's uh it, it's a challenge. And yeah. and it's a lot easier to get those cattle to finish when they're a little bit smaller frame. So and the easiest cattle to get to finish and which are the ones I sell are your young open cows that are still healthy and um, and especially if they're a little bit smaller in frame, you pull that calf on them, they come up open and you pull that calf on them and they even look at some green forage or, or some hay and, you know, they balloon up and, and they fatten right up. And those are mostly what I've been butchering and, and selling. And it's a great product. I mean, those cows are, can, can finish easy. They're fat. And I don't know why they're not a more desired product, honestly. Because we've been, uh, we let somebody else do our marketing. That's why. Yeah, we, yeah, there's this stigma that that needs to be this, you know, 20 month year old steer for anything to, to taste good. Where, when in reality, an uh, animal that young, the only way to get marbling in is just to shovel a whole bunch of feed to it. But these older cows, they 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 have a lot more natural marbling, these fat deposits in their muscle, that develop over the year, that expand and contract, you know, throughout the year, depending on 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 the the forage available. Yeah. And they're used I'm, to putting on this weight, and it's. I want to eat her. Where she? Yeah. <laughs> this one, I call her Peaches. Peaches has a calf. Look at look at how fat she is. Yeah, and she'd be she'd be great eating. What do you think Peaches weighs? Uh, 850, 900? I think she was around 8, 8 850. Last time we yeah, weighed anything are... back in September. So what, what are your yearlings weigh? Like 550, 600? Or... 
I'd have to go back and look. I think uh, the yearling steer I kept over, he was around, I think he was around 550, and the heifers were around 400. Interesting. So they, they don't gain a whole lot over the first winter. <laughs> but uh, no. that steer that I kept, um, we tagged him. We got a wait on him May 7th, and we got a wait again on him on September 14th. And I wasn't fast enough to see the weight, but I did see it say average daily gain 2.8 pounds per day. So he put on a bunch of weight this year. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's bigger and heavier than his mother. <laughs> like he's, he's probably got two inches on his mom and he's, he's bigger around now. So, so with these cows you bought, um, what is, what is your, your plan as far as revenue for them? Are, are you going to back around the calves or are you going to, what's your plan as far as marketing them? Ooh, well, funny. You should ask. I've been working on that. I haven't kept any of the steer. Well, I've kept a steer out of each calf crop just so I can watch how they grow kept all my heifers okay and after we weaned the heifers for 45 days after they've been separated for the cow 45 days they came back this year we hauled out to wheat pasture last year we did a fence line weaning um and i don't think i have to tell anybody about how bad you get your head torn off with half coriana calves going to sale barn and i don't want to tell anybody how bad i got my head torn off going to sale barn with these half coriander calves didn't think i had a choice i'm a little smarter now so i want to be the seed stock guy i want to be the guy that everybody within 200 miles drives by and goes i want his cows because his cows live on sticks rocks and dirt and they give me a beautiful calf every year so my angle is more towards the seed stock mm -hmm. stock business i feel like I feel like if I've, if I've predicted this trend correctly, I'm far enough in front of it that by the time the rest of the world catches up, I'll have something that everybody else wants. I think, I, I think you might be right. You know, make a small forage efficient animal that requires almost no inputs. That's, you know, disease and pest resistant that can live out here all year with minimum supplementation on salt the pasture and alfalfa that's going to be worth something that's going to be worth something i think we're going to see a big shift as far as uh bulls go too where people instead of going through these big production sales just buying them from from people like you that have a you know a good forage based operation um because for a long time i was buying my bulls you know, over east around Bismarck, and they would be wintering them on silage. And that's not my environment. And I'd get them here and they'd only last two years. Right. And so I've, I've started keeping a few of my own. Uh, this is the first year I've left calves uh, uncut, a few calves out of some of my smaller frame cows, and they had a small birth weight. And then uh, found a couple guys around here that have pretty good forage based operation. And trying to get some some of those genetics because that that's just the way of the the future because the margins are probably only going to get smaller and 
we need to we need cattle that that do well on grass especially if we don't have a feeding operation attached right and you know like like sage and i were talking about last week's episode or maybe it was before we recorded the episode when we were riding around you know one of the things that that i think may not be as helpful as a lot of guys think it is that's come out late you know in the last few years out of the school that shall not be named is um you know they like to preach that raising replacement heifers is really expensive yeah it is it has to be expensive because good cows are expensive and good cows are worth it and dallas will probably you know throw some shade at me for saying this but the the best replacement heifers are the ones you raise like the only way to buy the best way to buy good cows is to buy the ranch they're standing on yeah i'm, I'm actually my wife and i are signed up for the school that can't be named in <laughs> january and I've been kind of mentally preparing myself just from talking from others that have went what kind of advice we're, we're going to get because I got a buddy up here in North Dakota that went last year and they ended up selling their whole cow herd and they switched over to yearlings. So it's just like, uh, I'm open to whatever. Uh, I'm not, I'm not set in any sort of context, but I'm thinking there's probably going to be some hard truths we got to face when we, when we go there. So are you going in January? Uh, you said Bismarck uh rapid city south dakota going to rapid city okay i don't know who's teaching that one i might have to find out for you but i know john Locke was doing the one in bismarck in january that uh as well he got to go do the one in phoenix like a couple of week like a week <laughs> or two ago and as punishment for getting to go to phoenix in december he has to go to bismarck in january <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm looking forward to it though uh but i'm I know it's probably going to be uh, a long, probably emotional, stressful week from what I've, what I've heard, but uh, it needs, it just needs to happen. You said you're going with your wife. Yep. You're not going to be sitting together. Yep. I, I know that they're going to, they're <laughs> going to break it up. I, uh, I listened to that other, that other podcast that that clay guy puts out. I really enjoyed how he kind of chronicle, chronicled it last year. So you kind of know, know what i kind of know what to expect you know yeah i forgot he did that that was that was really neat um the way he did that one of my favorite things to do is like when i have a when i have a good friend that goes to the school is to call him sunday afternoon be like hey buddy how's it going how you feeling or like text month or uh not text them the sunday after the school but then text them the monday while the school is going on like monday about five or six o'clock and just say hey don't go to the bar because tomorrow's economics and doing numbers with a hangover sucks because <laughs> you just watch you just watch they'll be you go down to that bar monday night and just do a drive-by there'll be a bunch of guys in there having a legendary time because sunday's kind of a hard day you know or i guess it's not a hard day but you know it's the icebreaker day and then monday everybody kind of gets to know each other and like yeah let's go have a beer don't fall in that trap good advice <laughs> uh wow we're bumping up on two hours here buddy i think we're uh kind of keeping a promise for the week 
Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I, I really enjoy your podcast and I really enjoy what you and CK are doing to, to spread the message. And I, I can't imagine, you know, you're ranching and you're doing something on the side. So I know you guys got to put a lot of, a lot of time into this to put out a quality product. And uh, I just appreciate that. Well, thanks. I, I have an awful lot of fun doing it. Um, there is some work on the back end. Um, don't want to spoil anything yet, but we're going to have, there's some changes coming up. There's some changes coming up. CK and I, uh, we've got some, we're going to have some exciting things coming for the podcast in 2022. Can't wait. Where can we find you on social media? Um, how can people get a hold of you to harass you, tell you that you're wrong, argue <laughs> with you? Um, I put out most of my content now on TikTok, and my TikTok is at uh, Hungryman Butte Ranch. But uh, you can friend me on Facebook, Trevor Burian. Um, but most of my content now uh, goes up on TikTok, so you can find me there. All right. I'll make sure we get them in the show notes. And if you think of anything else, send it over to me. Will do. Appreciate the time, Brian. I appreciate you, Trevor. Uh, you. You've been one of my you've been one of my longest supporters of Red Hills Ranch. <laughs> I, I I can remember seeing Trevor Burry and liked your post for at least the last four or five years. So I want to thank you for your your longtime support and you know having you, having you on, let you tell your story. Uh, it's just just a way that I I want to show a little bit of appreciation for uh, for your continued support of me and what I've been doing over the years. Awesome. All right, and with that. I think we're going to get out of here. Guys, remember, there is no episode next week. We'll be back January 3rd with another episode in 2022. This one closes out uh, 2021 for us. I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you next year.